Hello, I'm Arnold Hamilton, editor of the Oklahoma Observer. And I'm Marianne Martin. And this is Observer Cast, your weekly deep dive into Oklahoma politics and policy. Presented by the Mary Lou Lemon Foundation. Oklahoma doesn't fare very well at a lot of socioeconomic categories these days. Of course, the governor wants or proclaims that he wants to make Oklahoma a top 10 state. The problem is we're bottom 10 in so many categories. And two of them that don't perhaps draw nearly as much attention as they deserve uh, involve the lack of affordable childcare in this state, which really impacts so many families. And another is the amount of medical debt that Oklahoma families are enduring. You know, um, I think one in five Oklahomans, if I remember correctly, uh, uh, bear some sort of uh, medical debt or have medical debt that's actually in collections right now. You know, that's a phenomenal figure. One in five, more than 20% of Oklahomans have their medical debt in collections. And when you start thinking about uh, child care and child care deserts in this state, the Oklahoma City Chamber recently completed a, a big survey where um, they determined, a statewide survey that determined that 55% of, of Oklahomans live in child care deserts. So 34 of the state's 77 counties are considered child care deserts. And you know, uh, the numbers the numbers are pretty revealing, I think. More than 187,000 kids under the age of five have parents who are working, but there are only 113,000, a little over 113,000 licensed childcare uh, spaces even available in the state. So fortunately, one of our newest state representatives from Tulsa, uh, Suzanne Schreiber, who's graciously joining us for this week's Observer Cast, is wanting to take a deep dive into both these subjects. She has uh, interim studies scheduled on October the 26th, uh, uh, focused on the lack of affordable childcare. And then uh, on October 30th, you'll take a, a deep dive into the uh, medical debt that's plaguing uh, Oklahomans these days. So it's great to have you with us. Tell tell everybody who, uh, those who are not as plugged in as we are, paying as close of attention as we are, tell folks a little bit about yourself before we get started here and how you ended up. I know you've sort of got some political lineage, so I guess you could say you were born to do this maybe, but you know, what got you into politics? Well, thank you, first of all, for having me. And I have been a longtime follower of The Observer. So what do they say? Longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> That's who I am today. And I am, uh, yes, I am a, a born into politics, you could say. I grew up having my parents be uh, involved in campaigns. And then when I um, was a freshman in college, my mom ran for lieutenant governor of New Mexico, which is where I was um, born and raised. And she, I think, probably holds a record. 
she ran for lieutenant governor three times. I don't know anyone that has done that. First two times she lost. She wanted it so bad. <laughs> she hung in there and ran, ran the third time. And she was the first woman lieutenant governor of New Mexico for eight years. And one of her very best friends that she hangs around with and um, is a good friend of is Fred Harris, who was a who is a great Oklahoman from Cotton County. And yes. um, a great senator and a great leader for not only Oklahoma, but the whole entire United States. And he's still doing great and is a great, um, a great public servant um, from the past and still thinks about and comments on and is around. So and he's 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 definitely an Oklahoma son. So um, they're they're good friends. But I actually didn't really think very much about serving until I was asked to run for the Tulsa Public School Board. I uh, came to Tulsa to go to the University of Tulsa and then something gripped me here and could never leave. Went back a couple times back and forth between New Mexico for short periods, but uh, stayed here and raised my family. I have four children here and practiced the law and then uh, ended up working for a large nonprofit and was asked to run for school board in Oh gosh, I can do it by how old my, I had a two-year-old, which I still think is crazy when I decided to do that, but I had a two-year-old. And so that was about 10 years ago because he's 12 now. And I served on the Tulsa public school board for eight years. So, and, so I gotta, I gotta ask you before you go any farther, sure. because, you know, school boards are such a flashpoint these days. And I think, so which is worse a year in the Oklahoma legislature with the composition that it is right now. I'm not asking you to diss all your compatriots across the aisle, but um, which is worse? Which is a tougher gig? Do you think these days, serving on the school board where the the fireworks are are incredible? Yeah. Well, I I am a big believer in public service and everybody taking their turn and if at it in some way, either supporting or being a doing it themselves. And so I don't want to say which one is worse. But I will say school board is very up close and personal with the people. Uh, and I think that's good training ground because what I do think makes a good legislator are people who are in touch with their constituents. Uh, but school board is, you know, very personal. And when we and having gone through um, the COVID pandemic, it became that really changed the nature of of everything we did on the school board because we had a lot of differing opinions about whether school should be open or closed and when during that time. And it, it was extremely stressful for people uh, of, of every socioeconomic, every background. And they had very strong opinions about that. And I would say that was very challenging, very, very challenging. And we had a, we were just dealing uncharted waters and uh, so we're trying, you know, kind of making it up on our own. And, you know, we took the position in Tulsa Public that there was a lot of things that we didn't know. And we were trying to think about not so much people who had the luxury of staying home from work and their office shutting down and working from home, but people who didn't, right? People who were a roofer or a CNA or something like that, that didn't have the the luxury or the kinds of jobs that were going to allow for someone to stay home and thinking about sending their kids home every day or all of the teachers that were in the buildings and who they might have at home that was vulnerable or something like that. So we really tried to think about it like that. And you have to 
take yourself back to pre-vaccine, right? When we didn't know <clears throat> really what was, how dangerous it was or for whom. And we had to make a lot of hard decisions. So I've only been in the legislature one year, but, um, and we actually get paid a little bit for that on school board. A school board member doesn't even make any money. And so I would say, if you ask me which is harder so far, I would definitely say uh, school board. I was president, I was vice president. And even though we only had to wrangle, you know, four out of the seven votes, it still was very um, intense, hard work that in the legislature, because we are partisan, sometimes it's, you can, you know, things get written off to the caucus, whereas School board is very individual. There's no parties. It's about the vote you take. And, you you know, you're answering to your constituents as an individual or as a leader. So I I, I respect everybody that um, runs for school board and served or has served. I think it's a great training ground for other offices or any kind of leadership that you will go on to because it is it's a very intense work in a unique way, right? There's not a lot of other boards where you're actually in there making decisions with the superintendent and helping make, you know, decide on very difficult things that a community is divided on frequently. But it sounds like too, that and I want to come back to this in a minute, but it sounds like you, you talk about it being a training ground, um, probably what you experienced there and went through with COVID um, made you keenly aware of the issues involved in childcare, affordable childcare, I would think here in Oklahoma. But let's take one more step back for, before we come to that. Uh, you replaced a Republican, uh, yes. Carol Bush. So a Democratic pickup. And describe that part of town, you're kind of in, a, so, yeah, I serve a mid lot of town. I mean, what it is? It's it's very midtown. It's it's twenty first, so Utica mm -hmm. Square down to almost to ORU, mm -hmm. and between Lewis and Yale is a general description of that. And so, a very kind of middle of Tulsa. Uh, at one time, it was South Tulsa, you know, but it's it's as Tulsa has grown, it's much more the middle of Tulsa, but. The city council district that is here is typically known as the city council um, seat that the mayor comes from. So G.T. Bynum, um, this was it was um, it was his seat. So that's that's kind of where it is. It's very kind of established middle of Tulsa. But it's a it's it's really a purple district now, right? Yeah, well, my the the it's it's it's. Uh, your, I mean, your district is what I'm. Yeah. Yes, very much so. It was Penny Williams Senate District, mm -hmm. but since thirty for thirty years, there has not been a Democrat in this seat for thirty years, and the re registration is still Republican majority in this district. So I think what helped me um, was that the previous member from this area was also very moderate in many ways. I think both of us are very, very similar. And she had tested the waters for what this district looked like. And she was a great representative. She was very in touch with her constituents. And I kind of knew, you know, what, what had always observed her and, 
and knew where where we were going and then you know there is no substitute for knocking doors and we knocked 10,000 doors and met people on the doors and understood what they wanted to talk about showed them my face showed them I'm you know I whenever the mail goes out and it shows you know Nancy Pelosi or something like that and me they can they can say you know they know me they've met me and and I wouldn't necessarily say everybody in my district has a negative opinion but whatever whatever tactic they you know but we're going to try to associate with me there was a lot of I think some mostly around crime was in last year and then I mean the truth was is that you know my district is was you know supportive of choice and very focused on public education both of those things were big issues and and my opponent was not focused on either one of those so I think that's why we were able to I mean we spent a lot of money we worked really really hard to inoculate me against whatever attacks were going to come and made connections with the voters in extreme like to the extreme like knocked doors over and over and over again mailed did some digital and really it ran an intense campaign to kind of introduce me to people that were going to be voters and i think in this presidential election it will be more of a challenge because we'll have more republican voters it's a biden midterm it's going to be or biden reelect it's going to be difficult for any democrat uh, disassociated from you your personality you know you, what your work is it's just i think it will be difficult so we will be running a really aggressive campaign because it has been listed uh, as one of the seats that the republican party uh is hoping to flip back and they would be silly not to say that right we know that after a short two years of service that's the time that you should you should go after a seat so, so Marianne, did you start to say something? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to jump on you. I, I, I um, so how did, how did these two issues sort of rise to the top for you? Sure, I'll start with childcare, and that came to me because I felt like post pandemic, everyone was talking about workforce mm -hmm. issues, and I felt like. Child care, addressing child care would be an issue that was, I knew was very bipartisan and it was affecting everyone, whether you were someone who was seeking child care, whether you have a small business and you don't have employees, uh, whether you're a grandparent and you're wanting to make sure that your, you know, grandkids have a place to go. It was, you know, totally, I thought, a very bipartisan issue. And I honestly thought, you know, the way it works is you win and then boom, you know, you're just it's like your first bill deadline comes up right after that. And so I was thinking that, okay, I, I want to try to work on this, but I bet there'll be a tons of childcare bills just because it seemed like it was so much in the news and so much, um, you know, people were really talking about what a hindrance it was to the workforce recovering. And I was really, I filed two bills last year on childcare and literally I was, those were the only bills um, that were addressing the issue. And and that's a, apart from what the Health and Human Services and DHS is asking for and what they're driving for. These are 
you know, kind of public private solutions that I was working on. Um, and we need a, we need the DHS solutions very much, but they're not going to ask someone in the minority party to run those bills. They're just not. And so um, that is how I came to those issues. And as I began to look at it and unravel it more, I I, I uh, had also seen a kind of a status of women report that a group called United We did last summer, where I was shocked at the figure that they had that it is the same cost to have a student in college is same amount as that it costs to have an infant in childcare for a year, same cost. And that's a lot for an Oklahoma if you can find a If you can find a space for them. If you can find a spot, <laughs> exactly. I just put the, the infant in college easier than finding an infant room for them. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> so why do you... Have you given a lot of thought to why it is that this wasn't seemingly a higher priority in the legislature, given everything you had been reading and the conversations that you've been having with people during your campaign, I assume, and, you know, all those sorts of things that, that this is a significant problem out there. Again, whether you're a, you're a small business person or you know, you're needing to employ folks. Or what? Or you're just you know you're somebody who wants to work but you know can't get the childcare for your kids and you know it, it is astonishing that there wasn't more legislation. It is. It is. It was. It really surprised me, and I think the issue is like many things. It's very overwhelming. There are some systemic issues that are probably hard to fix and then there are multiple other temporary things like where we got some federal funding that's going to go away and it sort of gets overwhelming when you start to look at it but I tried to focus and I will be doing um this next year again so I brought two bills one bill had to do with some zoning regulations uh that were really preventing um family daycare providers, so family home, which is about 25% of the providers in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, and there was some issues with some, some city uh, regulations that were really preventing them from ha having the full capacity that DHS had already licensed them to do. So we were able to get that bill done and signed by the governor. And I was really happy about that. My other bill has to do with some tax credits, both for employers that want to support their employees in the cost of childcare and also a tax credit for childcare workers. And the way that would work is if you are on the professional de development ladder and you have your um, child development license, which everybody that works in a childcare does and has to, then you would get a tax credit at the end of the year. And we use these incentives all over in every industry, right? We use them for nurses, teachers, software engineers in manufacturing. We use them everywhere. But in the industry that makes every other industry possible, not only are they lowest paid, they don't get any tax credits. So their tax credit would be a cash back credit at the end of the year, which would work just like an incentive. So 
if I work for eight months or more, then I would be eligible for the credit that would come back as cash if I didn't have tax liability, which at, you know, an average of $10 an hour, which is what these folks make, I probably am not going to have any tax liability. So that's how the incentive works. There's a couple of other states that have these, Louisiana and Colorado, they have much more intricate and larger credits than I proposed. My idea is that we just get in the door, get this going, look through the incentives commission and demonstrate that we were able to create stability and recurring and and retain employees, recruit and retain employees, and then we increase the credit over time. Um, but we we take an approach because uh, you know there's there's some hesitancy around tax credits, uh, and I understand that we don't want them to you know get out of control or throw our budget out of whack. So we want to make sure that we kind of build them up slowly over time and, and and really demonstrate that they actually work. So the levers that I'm seeking to pull is really focusing on one the affordability around offering employers a tax credit if they want to provide resources to their employees they can have a tax deductible credit against their business taxes and then the the tax credit for the child care workers really works to incentivize that workforce which is a huge issue in the global child care issue right we have a lot of different things that we can address to make our childcare system work better. There's a conversation about enrollment versus attendance and how we, the state pays these providers, right? When, as a school board member, I recall that on a certain day, we take a point in time count and that's how many students you're going to get paid for in public education every day, right? That's, it's that fixed number. And you, that way you can budget and it's the same number over, you know, the previous two years. Well, in childcare, the state subsidizes that, that care, but you get only get paid for the days the kids come. Well, that's a pretty hard budgeting challenge, right? Um, but so far, the, the state and leadership hasn't really shown a lot of interest uh, in switching to this model. There is an executive order from the Biden administration suggesting that, you know, eventually maybe that become federal law that you have to do that to get the local, to get the match or the pass through dollars. Um, but we're a long way from that being enacted. So I decided not to attack the attendance versus enrollment. There's definitely been conversations about that, but to go at it like we do with so many other industries, like I said, we offer a lot of incentives to nurses, to doctors, to software engineers, to manufacturers, to the aeronautics industry. Why don't we offer an incentive to our childcare workers who every other industry desperately needs? We know there's so many people out of the workforce because they cannot afford or find childcare. So when my oldest was a baby, um, I was a, a doctoral student at the University of Iowa, and 
um, lucked into getting um, a spot into their on-campus daycare. And it was like um, just a dream. It was an absolute dream. Um, it down to it being in this beautiful Dutch farmhouse building right across the street from the, the law school. Um, I just had to ride a bus over to go get her. Um, it was like on a couple acres of land, you know, so it was like right in the middle of town. But but what was really the best thing about it was um, the teachers were uh, had early childhood education degrees. You know, and so it wasn't um, it wasn't and, and you know, I grew up, I, I you know, Suzanne, maybe you did, too. I grew up in daycare. <laughs> you know, my parents. Yeah, my parent, my parents had to put me in daycare um, until I was a latchkey kid, you know, old enough to stay home by myself. Um, but it was just such a different experience for my like, and, and it just kind of shaped my understanding of like, this is what the standard can be, you know, um, because the teachers knew what they were doing. They were trained, you know, um, they had bachelor's degrees. Um and so it's really kind of shaped my consciousness of this issue, just in terms of um, the, edu the professionalizing the education of, or professionalizing the profession of caring for our kids um, as a means of, uh, you know, kind of upping the potential income, right? Like, um, and of course that, you know, you, you come into conflict with that with how little we pay our, you know, K-12 teachers, but, you know, the, the idea that, uh, again, incentivize, you know, because there are some incentives out there to get people to get education degrees, but it just, it, I mean, I, I'm right there with you in terms of why do we not incentivize this as a profession? Because, I mean, you're very much because you, I mean, it is a skill to deal with a classroom of six infants right and like managing those schedules you know keeping your cool um you know that that's a whole like that, that it's just like that's a lot yes right? and we know that we are building babies brains when they're in that yep. environment their little infrastructure for being able to cope with life is being built right then yes so having a quality provider is yes. so important and the state has put in a system that you know the more stars that you have as a child care either a family home daycare or a child care center the more your subsidy from the state is right so we mm -hmm. get federal dollars that pass through then we make decisions about how we're going to spend those dollars within the those federal regulations and particularly the more higher your star rating the more subsidy you can draw down and the importance of that is the kinds of things that are going on in that child care right there's a basic safety that has to happen there's yeah. basic ratios they have to have all of that but what's going on behind that are they certain you know NACI certified different things like that and these you know what we know is that when a, a child is in daycare that resiliency and that school readiness is actually a savings for the state right when they're in a child care center that helps them prepare be prepared to go to kindergarten or pre-kindergarten that the state pays for and they're in a quality setting that actually 
we will have something in our interim study where there's been a nationally norm study that comes out of Oklahoma and there's others, but a woman named Diane Horn from the University of Oklahoma will be speaking to, you know, what happens when you're in a quality childcare and what can happen in the brain and, and how that lasts. It isn't just in the moment, it's lasts over time. And so those, that is, it's important. I think for a lot of people to get incentivized about this, they have to, they, they want to think about it as a workforce issue. And so I, I largely keep my conversation to that because the benefits to our families and kids will happen either way. Um, well, or, or the harms, right? Like right. if we fail to invest, right? If we fail to look at this from all sides as a workforce issue, not just yeah. professionalized. Yeah the positions being professionalized, um, giving value and respect to the care, um, you know, and then what it means that a, a, you know, household can fully interact. Although, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that I think we should actually have to work. <laughs> like I want, I want to be clear about that, but you know, we have to work and, um, and I, and I'm just thinking of, um, the case, I guess, I think it was in Queens just a few weeks ago where a kid died and two kids were sent to the hospital because they found some opioids in their caregiver's house. You know, I mean, these are the risks that you have to weigh anytime you put your kid into daycare, right? Like, right. Or uh, you don't put your child into daycare. I think a lot of times yeah. what happens when we have the shortages is that this mother finds someone in her apartment building. Mm. Can you please watch this baby for just, you know, a few hours, mm-hmm. something goes wrong in that scenario and her life's ruined, that baby's life's ruined and all because, you know, we didn't have a nearby accessible, affordable quality childcare for them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the other thing is we have to start thinking about how people are working and living today too, right? What are the kinds of child cares that people need? We have a woman that runs um, uh, cosmetics manufacturing in Duncan, who I've spoken with in, in the past. She, to to serve her workers, she created a child care at her place of business mm-hmm. and talked to the school district about getting a bus stop at her place of business. So these kids can come in the morning with their mom mm-hmm. or dad, be there for an hour or so, and then get on the bus and go to, and the parent is already there and ready to work, right? They're not worried that it's 7 a.m. in the morning, they're leaving their kids and there isn't, are they going to get to the bus stop? Is the bus going to be late? I don't know what happened. All those kinds of things. And people are thinking about that, thinking about how, you know, if I can work two days a week uh, from home and I need childcare three days a week, how can a child, a provider make those numbers work for their business, right? We have to start thinking about some of those things too, because right now the, the, the employees, they're kind of running the tables. They can say what they want in these, in these types of, or they can say, I'm not going to work. I don't, I don't, I, this, it doesn't make sense. The math, the accessibility, the efficiency doesn't make sense. And so if we are desperate for, serving and we know we are we're in the knowledge economy and manufacturing in every single sector we need employees we need to think about how we can make child care an option for them so parents that want to work need to 
be able to say there's something nearby, right? Either my work or my home and something that I can afford that makes sense. And I still have some take home pay at the end of the day. And I feel like when I go, when I take my baby there, they're getting that back and forth that they need to build their brain, that they need to be getting socialized so that when they go into a pre-K kindergarten, they know this is what it's like. It's not just been at my mom's house all day where I got to do everything I wanted and I didn't have to deal with anyone else. And now I'm here in a kindergarten classroom and I've never shared. I've never sat on a rug. I've never lined up for anything. And you got 20 other kids that are hostage to that, right? And so there's just a lot of benefits to having not having the scarcity that we have now, right? We have a real scarcity. And that's why the Oklahoma City Chamber is doing a survey, is, you know, did this survey and put this together. I think this year we are seeing a lot more talk about this. Um, I don't know what kind of bills are going to get run. Um, I will, like I said, I'll be running my tax credit bill again. I will also be looking at, you know, Wisconsin, I think, and Tennessee have a shared public-private fund where they have a much more robust incentives than I'm proposing right now. So I don't think I'll be proposing those this year, but as I continue to build support and awareness, I hope to to continue to um, get people on board to help out with that. The state has invested with some of its COVID money on offering people grants to build childcare you know, facilities. Mm-hmm. I think we're probably getting to a place of where, yes, everybody's had their one-time money for that. And we have more facilities. What we don't have is workers and operators, yeah. right? We can build a facility, but if we don't have people that we can get to work there, then it doesn't work. And I just spent some time today in Tulsa with two providers who, um, are longtime providers in, in a neighborhood. And some of them are on like their third generation of, you know, families and kids. And they're 100% in it for the love and their community because it is a very thin margin. It is not a profitable industry. There's no retirement. These small businesses cannot offer health care mm-hmm. insurance to these folks. And you know, just because, you know, everybody gets a week off at Christmas, it doesn't necessarily mean somebody at Bama Pies gets a week off at Christmas. Their manufacturing lines still run. Yeah. So the child care has to make decisions about when they're getting paid on attendance and not enrollment. What are they going to do? They got to stay open. So it's, it's, it's a labor of love for these people. And I think it's a great time for the state of Oklahoma to recognize what they've been providing, you know, during during COVID, who didn't shut down? Daycares, right? They were there helping kids get on Zoom all day long, working. Mm-hmm. Lots of people ended up getting sick there, but they they were they were open because that's how they got paid, and that's how they were able to pay their employees and pay their mortgage on their small business, you know, and everything else. So we we really need to think about taking care of that industry in the way that we've thought about. Oil and gas, aeronautics, manufacturing, teachers, nurses, 
medical professionals. We have not offered anything to this class of essential workers. We just haven't. And I think it's all a discovery to all of us. You know, when I hear things every day, when that, you know, hearing them talk, it's like, God, I didn't even think about the fact that they probably can't offer health insurance. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it, and there, there are good things happening with some of that. There's, you know, Oklahoma is now offering this shared services model where you can get on and have a virtual doctor's appointment and things like that. But that that's not the same as if you get a catastrophic injury or illness, right? And you don't have health insurance. It's it's just different. And I think we really need to think about that in, in terms of how are we incentivizing these people? And I think a tax credit is a very small way we could start and demonstrate some of the supports that they need to make that industry work. So let's transition to medical debt. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, what, what's the inspiration behind this one? You know, what, what, what were you saying? So this was brought to me by a constituent. Okay. And, um, he's a, a just recently retired doctor and, um, he has a, another doctor that runs what we call a cash pay mm -hmm. um, practice. But I think people think of cash pay a lot of different ways, right? They're thinking, well, they're not insured. Well, not necessarily. They might have a very high deductible, which if you're on the exchange or something like that, you might. Mm -hmm. um, and so they, they came to it through Oklahoma has the third highest medical debt in the United States. And they came to it through, this is obvious to us because we don't have price transparency, right? And we know that over the last several years that there's been some federal work on that, the No Surprises Act and things like that. But even still, you go to an emergency room, you're sick, you know, you're going to get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, that, but, but I need a hip replacement. I'm 60. Let's say I need a hip replacement rather than being me being able to say at X hospital or provider, it's going to cost me this here. It's going to cost me this here. It's going to cost me this. I have no way to shop that even though I'm a, I'm a cash, I'm a, I'm a cash payer. And I think they they came at it through, we need more transparency to help in this debt issue. That spurred me on to looking at medical debt more and like childcare, there's a lot of levers. Transparency, price transparency is one of them and it is very important. And we don't really have any way to enforce that in the state of Oklahoma right now. This is the federal law that hospitals have to be have price transparency, but I challenge you to go on any hospital website and try to figure out what it costs to get your gallbladder removed. Mm -hmm. It's, 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 it's very difficult and it could be much easier. So I ran a bill last year, uh, around price transparency. My predecessor, Carol Bush had ran it as well. And she was able to get the federal, uh, her second to last term, she was able to get her, the federal language mirrored in Oklahoma without any enforcement. Mm -hmm. So now we have a law that says you do have to have price transparency at the hospital level, but there's absolutely no consequences if you don't. And 
that's probably not going to get a lot. So far, we haven't seen a lot of compliance. So we ran, um, uh, Representative Bush ran one that imposed fines if you didn't have um, the price transparency and that didn't go anywhere. So we ran a different model last year that has to do with you can't collect a debt if you have not made your prices transparent. And I continue to believe that's the best model because it attacks that debt issue as well. Um, another issue that we have in the medical debt world is kind of how debt is reported and how it's collected. Um, we don't have a lot of plain language that the average person can understand around when they are being getting ready to be garnished um, or how much time they have to appear before they can challenge a garnishment or something like that. Um, we don't have a lot of, you know, direct sight lines into how hospitals decide to turn something over and how much, you know, in a nonprofit hospital world, they, they have obligation to be offering to write a lot of this debt off before it ever goes. We don't have a lot of sight into how that works. I would say that's my biggest question because um, we are a high utilization family um, a lot. Uh, Arnold knows all about it. So do most of our listeners. Um, but like the 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 quickness with which say one hospital will send things to collection um, and then the tenacity that another one will just like continue to try and collect through their billing office is like what they're it just it's like whoa wait you've already sent that to collection like because i mean we also know um that the first bill that you get is probably not the accurate one um because it you know insurance is still doing its little thing you know tallying all the numbers and the discounts and whatnot so to your point about transparency but you know for those of us that uh deal with this a lot and have the time and the bandwidth to kind of haggle with it right because that's the other piece like um, that first bill is not your final bill. Uh, it's not the it's not the final number. It never is, um, you know. And then suddenly, uh, Integris has sent things to collection. It's like, wait, I don't know that I ever actually saw that bill. So, <laughs> um, yeah, this is something that it's just it's it's not very well. This is truly more discovery, I would say, in this world of understanding how that industry is regulated around that, what their obligations are when they are a nonprofit hospital, how all of that works. And then, you know, once we lose, once the, you know, it's like everything else, it's like your mortgage and so many credit card debt, all those kinds of things, it gets bought and bought and bought and bought, right? So yeah. we don't know probably the true figures on what medical debt is in Oklahoma. Uh, and there's there's very long windows for collection. I mean, very long mm -hmm. uh, for collection on debt. And so the <clears throat> that that is something that we might be looking at as some and you know there's there's ways there's capping interest rates. Other states do some things around that, around capping medical debt interest. But this is another issue that is very very bipartisan. My co-author for the um, price transparency bill will be Representative Mark LePak, um, who is a, a you know a, a staunch conservative, 
Um, mm-hmm. This is a, this is in, in many ways this is also a very moral issue, right? We need it's very it's it's basic. There's nothing else where we don't don't say this hamburger costs this, this mattress costs this, this car costs this. There's not no other service or good provided to us where we cannot assess the cost. And I think that's maybe part of what rubs conservatives, but also that, you know, people can, it's, it's extremely difficult to be a full functioning citizens when you, when you have that debt weighing on you it causes a lot of sort of inertia for a person. Right. I would, I would wonder too, because, you know, we have, Except for a short window of time, um, and Suzanne, I don't know if you know, but you know we had a child with cancer, and so we have we have seen all of the things, you know, um, when it comes to our healthcare system. Um, and and I'm just thinking of like every time we've landed, like when we're getting ready for the OR, um, you know, here comes a little registration lady in her cart. I'm like, I know you're just doing your job and I'm trying not to be hateful, but if I'm in a high stress moment and the first thing you're doing is coming at me, asking for my, my, you know, <laughs> insurance card. And I'm like, this is not what I'm thinking of. And then the first, my daughter was in the hospital for two and a half weeks in uh, September of 2019. And the amount of time I had to spend haggling with them because I was not insured at that time. And they asked me if I had sooner care yet. And I had to spend so much time chasing this down, you know, so it's like the energy could be directed different places, but all of this is to say is that, you know, we have had some stunning hospital bills, um, that eventually, you know, go to insurance, but those last few pennies that they, (laughs) that they insist on hunting after, um, when they've gotten paid for a $250,000 procedure, right but there's like pennies left essentially right Um, but who goes to garnishment and who go you know who do they sue versus people like us where i mean let me just say we have our strategies for dealing with these things right so it's just it's so uneven to go after like and and i'm just gonna go out there and guess that it's the vulnerable right it's the don't have insurance it's the people who don't have the funds to pay for these procedures or the wherewithal or the extra time or the right the bandwidth that we did to like call everybody that we knew to help resolve this issue right absolutely and it it affects obviously you know our our most vulnerable populations at the most but really what happens is it affects all of us because it it's it, turns it passes the cost to the consumers yes right well, and I, do, I do think it's worth pointing out here that when i mentioned in the intro that more than one in five Oklahomans have a medical debt in collection right now. Mm-hmm. If you look at it strictly from um, a factor of who's who's paying who's who's in collections for medical debt based on race, based on color, it skyrockets. It it jumps well into the thirty percent range. So there you go. Yeah. Yes. And, and and then like let's let's like you know, I want to pick this apart a little bit because we know in the state of Oklahoma, sorry, I'm just messing with my hair and it re- looks really weird now <laughs> with the backdrop, but we know in Oklahoma that we have a 
we have not only childcare deserts, but healthcare deserts. Um, we have a lack of, you know, ready access to primary care providers, which leads to a lack of access to preventive care. So it means that people are finding healthcare when their health issues are um, chronic and extreme and not just a mere cough or a cold, right? And so people who weren't going to the doctor anyways, and it's largely because they don't have insurance to do it are going to the hospital and they're going to the ER when they are the sickest. And so I can only guess, you know, that these collections are for those people who went at their most vulnerable, you know, and, and I, and I just cannot think that anyone in this state, Republican, Democrat, otherwise thinks that's the best option for anybody. Right. (laughs) So, you know, medical debt is really just kind of the um, the symptom, not the disease, right? Like, right. Yeah, we have, we have a lot of systemic issues around that. I mean, we do now that we have finally implemented, you know, um, Medicaid, uh, that's a better scenario, but we still have people, particularly people that are maybe not Medicaid eligible, but on the exchange, mm-hmm. maybe they don't have, you know, a blue chip. They're not a lawyer that's getting, you know, some kind of program through their big law office or whatever like that. They're in that, that very middle. And so their, their deductible is extremely high. Mm-hmm. So they need to pay cash most of the time. Yeah. Cause they probably don't have a health savings account or a, an FSA, right? <laughs> like they don't probably have all not. these white collar pre-tax options. Yeah. I mean, this can be small money business owners. They'll have money be, left over. Right. This can be small business owners. It's entrepreneurs. It's all kinds of people. So there's things that around the United States that have to do with um, different kinds of ways that people uh, go at this problem, right? Which include um, one of the most exp- inspiring was um, I met a fellow representative from Pennsylvania and he worked on a bill to buy off the debt with uh, a nonprofit and some state dollars. So they bought basically all of the debt back for, for you know, it's you, you can buy three or four hundred dollars worth of debt that they're working to collect for. Five ten million dollars. Yeah, and what what does that do for your economy? It's actually quite stunning, right? To get oh my gosh, to return that money to people's pockets. Yeah, and relieve relieve their well and relieve their stress around it. Relieve their credit scores. Relieve their um you know a, a debt that they're not going to pay off in their lifetime. Truly, they won't be able to right and. A, a debt that's actually not going to be collectible probably. I ever. mean, just think about the absurdity of having a debt related to your health, you know, right. you know, I mean, that's, that's really the core absurdity And this. And I'm just, I'm going to go a direction that I'm sure you, maybe you didn't intend, but I'm going to go there. Like the fact that like, um, you know, that we don't have single payer healthcare when anyone's having to pay any out of pocket amount um, when our taxes could be paying. Right. It's just, 
um, I, I really want to go in that direction, but I, I'll try not to go too far. But just like the 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 sheer absurdity and inhumanity that anyone goes into debt because they needed health care. Yeah, it's it's definitely the whole American system has major issues. And I'm one bite at the elephant yep. person. <laughs> right. Trying to think about some small things that could really be impactful that right. could change this, I mean, right? This is like, yeah, I mean, you're really just kind of pulling the curtain back on so much right. through so this one price angle. Price transparency. Can we look at interest rates on medical debt, limiting that? Can we look at the times it's collected? Can we look at plain language to communicate to people? This mm -hmm. is what this is about. Can we better understand community benefit rules, which has to do with nonprofit hospitals and what they can and cannot turn over to debt. I mean, there are, there's a lot of things that we can talk about. I will say that we need the hospitals and the medical associations to partner with us um, in order to advance this legislation. Because mm -hmm. I do think they, they have concerns, um, but I think working with them instead of surprising them or against them is, is probably going to be our most effective um way to go about this and i think maybe now that they're getting a little more stabilized after medicaid expansion and coming off of covid that we may have some opportunities to really encourage them to not kill these bills behind closed doors mm -hmm. um, and that's why also i'm joining with some other you know with uh, colleagues across the aisle because i think it's important that we have, you know, a bipartisan approach too. I think that'll that'll really help. I, the the issues have not really been with my colleagues on either side in these conversations. It's more, it, it is about industry to be honest. They just resist any kind of new regulations. Um, I think they think the feds are going to handle this, different things like that. But we kind of know that. It's sort of just as long as we can hold this off, let's do. And I think it's time with Oklahoma's, you know, we're here at the very top. We need to make some progress on on changing the way that we uh, allow medical debt to be incurred, collected, and even, you know, the knowledge of the consumer of what they're getting themselves into. You know, I'm I'm the old guy here in this conversation, and I was so <laughs> thrilled to hear you use the "How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time?" because that's kind of feels like <laughs> my my era here. But there was another saying that kept coming to my mind through all this, which is, you know, and, and this is a good okieism: you can't bleed a turnip. And I, I just keep thinking of the folly of a system in which you sort of turn the medical establishment into uh, you know, a bunch of hound dogs pursuing people who are never gonna be able to pay this stuff off. I, to what end at the end of the day is, is, exactly. this, is this playing out this way? They're not, getting the, they're not getting much, if any, money out of it, any income out of it. I guess some companies that do this for a living are getting paid by the hospitals, but it's it's like, I don't know, here we go with another, I'm going to put an earthy, you, it's, it's, you know, the hospitals and so forth are pissing in the wind on this. And it seems that 
it doesn't yeah. take a rocket scientist to it reminds me very much of the discussion that we had in Oklahoma or having and still continue to have around fines and fees in the criminal justice system. Uh, exactly. Yeah. We yep. have all these fines and fees out there that the majority of these people are never going to pay that cannot get collected. And they're sitting out there and people are getting thrown back in jail for them. And we've we've made progress on that issue. We truly have. And we will. I think we will continue because people have realized that is not that is not a ethical to <laughs> fund our criminal justice system on the backs of uh you know the the people who are intersecting with it but second of all it's it's not a good way to fund the system because we're not collecting that and in this case as well another thing, we saw, another thing that we saw during covid is when it completely shut down and there were no fines and fees so yeah mhm mm yeah so I think there are there's these these issues and I and I and I there have been price transparency bills, but really the conversation about kind of elevating this issue and making people understand that one in five Oklahomans is carrying medical debt in collections, that that's shocking. Mm -hmm. And it is not a well-known fact among policymakers. And I think it's important for people to understand when they're thinking about all these other things. When you're telling a parent, oh yeah, you can't afford this childcare. Well, one in five of them also has a medical debt, <laughs> you know? And so kind of get, getting the global picture of what an Oklahoman has when we haven't raised our minimum wage, right? We, we know most Oklahomans are not making $7 and 50 or 80 cents or whatever it is now, but if that's the base wage, they're not making also 15. They're probably making, you know, 10. They're starting jobs that still offer $9 an hour in the childcare industry, for example. Yep. Uh, in the healthcare industry. Do you see parallels? I, I know that since COVID, that there has been a precipitous drop in the childcare workforce in this state. Yes. Do you see parallels with the teaching profession and the teacher shortages that we have? And and maybe, you know, is it respect is, or lack thereof? Is it funding? You know, is it, is it's it definitely, is it, you know, are, are they very similar in that respect? They are similar in the way that it is not at all a, not, you know, when we think about essential workers, I think people think of a paramedic. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, a doctor or something like that. A childcare worker is an essential worker. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is something that when we have a giant electrical outage, you know, in Tulsa or a huge storm that happens here and all the linemen and everybody have to go to work and they're essential, somebody's got to take care of their kids, mm -hmm. right? We have to value them as that. And I think we've done a better job of investing in K through 12 education. And we have what's the Inspire to Teach, which actually provides cash money to people who want to go into the teaching profession while they are in college and in their first couple of years of um, teaching. To, it's a total value of about $10,000 that we passed past couple of years. Well, if you're thinking about that or early childhood, you're definitely going to go K through 12, when you know you can get some subsidies, it's not a scholarship, it's 
here's some money to help you get groceries while you're in college, while you're a student teacher, while you're doing these things. And we don't have any equivalent for that for a, for a child care worker. And I think it's just something that for so long people assumed was going to happen. And now we're recognizing that our workforce is, is hobbled and that we have large numbers of people sitting out of the workforce directly tied to the lack of child care and the lack of affordability. So we know that's a lever that we can pull there. And ironically, to tie the two things together, a lot of the people that would be using a child care often work in the medical profession. They're, they are a nurse, they are a CNA, they are someone that works at the front desk at the hospital or your doctor's office. They need child care too, to be able to you know create the services that we need. And so you know, hospitals actually have been very creative in trying to figure out how to make sure that their staff has the child care that we need. Uh, or that they need for them. Not all of them, but some of them have. I think Integris is particularly good at it. And that's just another person that we, that another kind of industry that we can learn from of how they're taking care of their employees. And when they do the right thing like that, why shouldn't they get a tax credit for it? You know, when they make those investments in their employees to make sure that they do have child care so that they can staff. So I, I do see the parallels between you know, not having a a livable wage for a child care worker. Do you think that speaks to who we elect, you know, for example, to the legislature? Uh, not everybody is, is a silk stocking person. I, you know, I recognize that, but it, you almost sort of get the sense that um, a lot of these folks don't have a clue what a lot of what I call workaday Oklahomans face, the kinds of challenges that they face just to be able to keep the lights on, a roof overhead, food on the table, the kids where they're supposed to be, uh, and still manage to get to work on time on a regular basis and pay their medical debts and their student loans, by the way. And well, let's see what else we can add to the, while, while their childcare costs are skyrocketing. I think that we have some folks who come from a different era when you could make it on one income. And if a parent wanted to stay home or a mother traditionally wanted to stay home, but I do think we're starting to elect another generation of folks who are very much a dual income home. And they recognize that there are, uh, you know, needs because there's kind of, you know, I think I learned this on school board. There's two kinds of people. There's people who think about only their own experience. <laughs> and then there's a, just a different person who thinks about their own experience and what other people who have less or more of them might be going through, less or more than them might be going through. And I think the more people that, you know, that'd be my litmus test for, you know, electing someone is, are they able to think about a lot of different types of people that might be facing certain consequences from policy, not just their own experience. And I think we're kind of getting a little bit of turnover where there isn't, you know, if that's just like, in some ways, I think a generational thing of just very traditionally, you know, the man works, the woman stays home and takes care of the children when they're younger. And then when they get older, 
they um they they start to go to work or maybe they at that time they go back and further their education or something like that and i think there's you know in today's world that's that's less and less common right and and it also doesn't invade anybody's values if you want to stay home that's fine that's no problem you certainly can do that no, nobody's changing that but this creates the the opportunity that if you want to be a, you know a working mother or a working dad you you have options for that or if you want both of of your people i mean you know listen hey even if I wanted to stay home, I don't think I would want to take care of my kids all day. I wouldn't be the greatest at it. I have four kids, but I, I don't actually really like little kids that much. <laughs> They're a lot of work. It's a lot of work. There yes, is no, it is. There's no checking your email. You know, there's no talking on the phone even for a second or stopping and visiting with a friend or a peer. I just say, I just it. always say, I'm not trained to take care of <laughs> Like the other people are trained and educated to handle the little ones, right? Like I love right. my kids, um, but you know, no, like there's other people that are trained. <laughs> right. I mean, we all learned that through COVID too. And we all thought we were going to go home and be teachers and you realized uh, yeah. how important the training and the coping skills are to deal with all of that. And yep. I will tell you, it was much easier to be a grandparent during that period. I just want to point that out. Yeah, y'all lose yeah. all sense of your training when you become a grandparent. I'll just say that. Like, <laughs> you lose all your school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All. So, but I, I think there's a lot of opportunities. I think that, you know, there's a lot of ways that we can advance some policy on this. And I, I think my, you know, colleagues on both sides of the aisle are open to the discussion um, because, you know, whatever's motivating them, whether they're thinking about a small business in their town that they want to go to the next level that needs more employees, whether they need to think they're having an issue with housing in their um, community, people aren't able to get housing because they have a crappy credit report because they have debt. All of these things can be solved in, you know, or uh, improved with these, in these two issues. Right. Lots of other issues, too. But these are two things that can impact a lot of things in their communities. And so I think they're open to that discussion. And we just have to decide, you know, how are we going to budget around this? Do we want to spend some money on buying off some debt? Do we want to spend some money on tax credits? Do we want to cap some interest rates? And we don't have to spend any state money on that. We can just tell the when you, you know, or we can tell, you know, when you report a medical debt, you cannot use that on someone's credit report. That's very common in other states. We can regulate that. And I think when you have one in five Oklahomans that are facing that, I guarantee every single person in the legislature knows or has their own story about having a debt either trying to be collected or that they've seen someone really suffer with that. So I think, you know, there's too many for them to not be able to see it, no matter what their perspective is. Well, so our folks who are listening need to be aware that there's some time here for them to weigh in with you on this before your interim studies. Yes. Uh, the, what, the 26th? Is the, the child care study. Mm -hmm. And the 30th for medical debt. Yes. And this is a good opportunity to do that. 
Yes, I answer all my own emails. A press release went out today about these and I've already gotten three or four people, um, even with suggestions and ideas. I, a lot of people have sent. Kentucky actually pays for all its childcare workers to have daycare. So if you are a, a daycare worker or a childcare worker, your childcare for your children is free. We have a version of that in Oklahoma, but it's it's not permanent. It was something that was COVID funded. So we could, you know, fund that beyond that. But lots of people have heard that article and sent it to me. And, you know, people have great ideas about how to improve, run their own personal experiences with this. And so please, yes, I would love to have people reach out. And even if, you know, you don't get to watch the study, uh, you can, it's recorded, you can watch it online. And then, you know, the objective is that we'll be shaping legislation off these conversations. So even after the fact, reaching out, tracking, following, helping us advocate if it's an issue that you're interested in, I hope people will reach out to me because these are, you know, two things that we can really bear down on. And one, one thing I learned in my first year in the legislature was a lot of remarks around certain bills and policies start out with, this is my fourth time to run this bill. This is my fifth time to run this bill. This is my second time to run this bill. And that's okay, because we are putting something that you can go and pull off a statute, you know, pull off a book in a statute that can be enforced against someone or protect someone. So we want it to be worked over and well vetted. I support I support that very much. So we will be working on this issue um, long past this session, but we do have bills that are gonna be trying to get past this session. That seems like a good place to... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, thank you so much for spending your Monday evening with us talking about this. Um, you know, we, we would love to talk more with you about this and other issues that you bring. And so we hope we'll have you back. Great. We'll stay in touch. I'd be happy to. And thank you all for sharing and doing all the work that you do to keep Oklahomans informed of important issues and and continuing to, you know, be an accountability partner for all of us as we go forward. And like I said, any Oklahoma observer, you know, I don't care. You don't have to be a House District 70 member. Wherever you are, we represent, we are representatives. And so I'm very happy to speak with anybody wherever you are um, about these issues or anything else. I've actually had people outside of my district bring other things and we started working on them and they, they um, advanced them and, you know, maybe their representative wasn't interested, but we were able to get something done. So I'm here. This is I believe in public service. I want it to be a good experience for Oklahomans when they reach out to their public servants. So I'm very dedicated to trying to keep that relationship and, and demonstrate that government can do something for you. <laughs> it's not just a pain. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Have a great night. And we you too. Thank you both. Thanks for oh, reaching yeah. out. I appreciate it. Yes. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of ObserverCast. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about us and share our episodes far and wide on social media. 
If you're interested in sponsoring ObserverCast, please give Arnold Hamilton a call at 405-478-8700 or drop him an email at ahamilton at okobserver.org. You can also support ObserverCast with a tax-deductible donation to the Oklahoma Observer Democracy Foundation, whose mission is to help create a better, more informed Oklahoma. And to help keep us on the air, visit okobserver.org and click on the Donate button on the upper right side of the homepage. We also urge you to subscribe to the Oklahoma Observer, now in its 55th year of comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. We have a special digital subscription rate for ObserverCast listeners, only $1.99 a month for the first year. That's 50% off the usual rate for monthly digital subscribers. Just use the coupon code OBSERVERCAST when checking out to get the discount rate. And finally, we want to thank Jared Deck for the music you're listening to in the background here. He's not just a resident of Norman anymore. He is now the Oklahoma State Representative for House District 44. Congratulations, Representative Deck. We're so proud of you. But you can still download his albums at iTunes and learn more, including dates for any upcoming performances at jareddeckmusic.com.